Welcome to the View from the Penalty Box podcast with Cam Connor. Classic hockey stories from one of hockey's toughest enforcers. Episode 3, I'm Cam Connor, former professional hockey player, along with my son, Chris Connor. Hi there. So, this is probably, I'm going to make an assumption that this is going to be one of your more downloaded, popular podcasts, because uh, the main topic for today is Rowdy Roddy Piper. Um, I know you could probably fill 10 podcast episodes talking about Rod, um, but before we get to the to the main topic our i have a question for you in terms of if you have advice for players that just signed their contract i know that there was uh to put it lightly a few hiccups in some of your contracts so if you wanted to share maybe what it's like as a new player without any training in terms of negotiating and contracts and uh if you have any advice well, I think that the, the players today, they have a lot better representation than we did back in my day. You know, Bobby Orr was the first hockey player in the NHL that, that ever had uh, an agent, player agent, and that was Alan Eagleson, and we all know what he turned out to be like. And so probably I came along, you know, two, three, four, five, six years after the first agent got out there. And you could have anybody represent you back in those days. And uh, I never thought that I was going to be a high draft choice. I never thought that uh, I would ever need an agent. I knew nothing about them. So I tended to have always my whole life. I've learned my lessons the hard way, and it usually cost me money. And so today's athlete, they're a lot wiser. There's, like I said earlier, a lot more, they're surrounded by a lot more honest uh, financial advisors and, and negotiators. So back in my day, I I, uh, I remember when I was living in Flin Flon playing hockey and all of a sudden, you know, I've been told I'm going to be a first rounder. There was an agent that came up and he wanted to meet with me and represent me. And I remember I was just thrilled that somebody wanted to represent me. And so I signed with this guy, the very first guy that asked me. And I realized later, though, as, as we were in his hotel room talking, that I said, well, I don't really know anything about you. Um, so I'm going to put a clause in there that if I don't want to keep you as my agent, I have no repercussions. So he said, oh, well, if you want to. So I put a clause in there that he initialed and I initialed. And as it turned out, you know, Six weeks later, as I started asking questions, I found out this guy wasn't very honest and kind of a crook. So I was able to just phone him up and say, throw that contract away. I don't want you. So my next agent that I got was recommended to me by my hockey coach. And that's the man, Patty Janelle, who I love to death. He did so much for me and I would do anything for him. And so I hired this guy, and he used to be a used car salesman. 
but he had himself surrounded by with neurosurgeons, lawyers that was part of his group. And um, but again, you know, when I think of a used car salesman as being my negotiator, it wasn't too impressive. But my coach recommended him. He said he was honest, and that's all I was looking for was somebody that was honest to represent me. And you know, I had a lot to learn, and I figured. You know, if he's honest, I could learn from him and uh, maybe one day wouldn't need to pay an agent and I could just take over myself. So um, I hired this fellow and there's some lessons that I've learned. And so one of the things, and I don't know if it's applicable to anybody today, but I was a first rounder, as I've mentioned before, I was number five in the NHL draft. And back in my day, if you're in the top five for sure, you're guaranteed $100,000 a year. You're guaranteed that. And so I think I, you know, my lawyer fees was paid for by my hockey team. So I never did know, which, you know, comes out of my pocket. I never did know what the Phoenix Roadrunners end up paying this guy, but I'm sure quite a bit. Um, but what I would, advice I would give any high-ranked junior players if you're paying an agent now 7%, 8%, 10%, whatever the going rate is now, and you're a high draft choice, the lesson that I learned was, okay, like I said earlier, we were guaranteed hundred grand back in my day if you were in the top five. You saw it in the paper what these guys, you know, was rumored to be making. So I paid my guy whatever it was, but what I should have did was to say to my agent, okay, that five-year deal you just got me, I got myself to hundred grand a year, so that's 500000 that I got myself. You didn't negotiate that for me, so I'm not paying you any percentage on that first $500,000. Um, and then anything you get me over the 500000 well, then I'll give you 10%. Um, that's where you earn your money. So... That was one of the lessons that I learned is I, I got that first 500000 He He didn't negotiate that. If I was a fifth rounder and he got me, you know, five hundred grand plus, he earned every nickel, but he didn't. So that's one thing I would advise is uh, don't pay that first little bit you got yourself if you can help it. Another thing I learned is when I decided not to go to Montreal Canadiens and I was going to go to Phoenix Roadrunners and I... You know, I was told this is the largest contract ever paid to a junior hockey player coming out of Canada. And uh, they, you know, it was a five-year deal. So I remember asking my agent, I started thinking about this. I said, well, this is the world hockey, you know. They've only been around for a couple seasons. And so how do we know they're going to even be around or the team's going to be around for a five-year contract? And he said to me, Oh, no, no, you have a guaranteed five-year contract. So if they fold, you get all your money. I said, oh, okay, well, that's great. So as it worked out, you know, I found out that this guy lied to me, that if the team folded, he got his five years salary, but not me. So today I would say, okay, show me where it says that in the contract. Or... You know, if you're making enough money and you're not really sure of who you got as your agent, 
you can easily hire a second lawyer to look over what the first lawyer did and keep things above board. So those are a couple obvious in hindsight lessons that I've learned, but it cost me quite a bit of money. But what about the uh, con- controlling your own bank account? Well, that's a good point too. So what this agent said to me, and again, I'm 19 and I, I, I never had lots of money before. I had to work every summer for, or work hard, physically hard to make money. And so all of a sudden I've got a lot of money coming my way. And I remember asking my father if he could help me. And my dad said, well, you know, I've never had that kind of money. I don't have any experience uh, to help you out. So it went back to, you know, I was just looking for some honest guy. You maybe weren't even the best agent, but if you were honest, then I could live with you. So what they said to me was, and I knew I wasn't the type of a hockey player, individual that got my money and I would go buy drinks for everybody in the bar and buy a lot of vehicles and spend my money foolishly. I just never was that kind of guy. I had to work too hard for it. So this agent said to me, you know, Cam, when you get to be 55 years old, you're making so much money in this contract that I want to make sure that, you know, you're taken care of and you're going to be able to retire. and We'll invest this money for you. And uh, so he had me sign power of attorney. So my first two years, I didn't see my paycheck once. And he would give me X amount of dollars every couple weeks. He'd wire me some money or put it in my bank account. And and I remember when he wanted power of attorney, I didn't know any better. And and I remember saying, well, will I get monthly statements? Oh, yes, you'll get monthly statements. Well, all of a sudden, you know, my life took off. And that wasn't really in the forefront um, of my everyday activities. But as I thought about it, I'd say, hey, I didn't get uh, a statement for two months. So I'd get a hold of this agent and he'd say, oh, yeah, oh, no, yeah, it's coming. Yeah, it's coming. And then he would send me something written written in pencil. And to this day, I still couldn't understand the damn thing. And so, you know, you never, I, I don't think, I'm not dishonest. And I, I never, ever thought anybody would be dishonest. But. I remember the president of the Phoenix Roadrunners. He came up to me. He was a former hockey player. His name was Bill McFarland, a gentleman, classy man. And he came up to me after my second year and he said, Cam, you should be handling your own money. You shouldn't give power attorney to anybody. And, you know, I, I, I kind of give lip service. Yeah, you're right, Bill. Yeah, you know. And it went in one ear and out the other. And it wasn't until the end of that season when I realized, for example, I was making the second year, I was making a hundred grand. And the hockey team came up to me and they said, you know, we spent a little bit too much money the year before. Um, can we just pay you 50,000 this year and we'll pay you the rest next year? We'll, uh, put all legal documents, you're owed the money, we'll definitely pay it. So I asked my agent, oh yeah, no problem, yeah, let him do it, we'll drop a document. You know, as it turned out, the, you know, this team ended up folding in the third year, and uh, they end up settling with me for the 50 grand that they owe me for uh, 33% on the dollar. 
And so, you know, I lost money there. So when I started realizing the advice that this guy was giving me, and he wasn't sending monthly statements, I ended up dropping this guy. And he said, how could you, for after everything I did for you? Well, he didn't do anything for me. He, he just took my money. And the other thing that uh, I found out happened is I had annuities. And if I took them out while I lived in the States, Canadian annuities, I'd get taxed less than, this, you know, residing uh, as a non-resident. So I took out all my annuities, cashed them in, that this guy had purchased. And as it turned out, a number of years later, I got a phone call. I believe it was from the Royal Bank of Canada when I was in Montreal. And he said, uh, your, your RSP is going to expire in the next month and you're going to owe some taxes. And I said, well, I don't, uh, I don't have any RSPs I, or any annuities. I said, I cashed them all in. And they said to me, oh, no, no, you've got this one for, I think it was $25,000 and uh, it'll owe taxes on it. I said, I've cashed them all in. I don't have any. And they said, no, I've got it right in front of me. This is yours. And I said, well, where's the money been going each month that I'm supposed to be getting, you know, from the annuity? And they said, well, it's going into your bank account. I said, what bank account? And then they looked, and it was going into part of that uh, lawyer's group was a neurosurgeon. And it was going into this doctor's bank account. And so I found that out. I phoned the doctor up. He lived outside of Toronto. I won't identify where. And I remember I phoned him at his office, and I said, Doc, uh, I got a hold of him. It's Camp Connor. And the guy said, who? I knew he knew who I was. And I said, it's the guy whose money you've been taking the last four years. How dare you? I'll sue you for slander. And I said, buddy, if you want to do that, I've got all the proof in the world. I've talked to the Royal Bank. I know where the money's been going each month. And I will try to ruin your career. I know people at the Toronto Globe and Mail. And I will phone them and tell the story. Well, a few days later, you know, I got this check for 25000 less $250 handling fee. He charged me handling fees. And so there was a lot of lessons that I learned uh, the hard way, and those were just a couple of them. So, number one, keep an eye on your own money. Hire the right lawyers, for sure. Well, that's a can of worms that I just opened up, but it's uh, it's good advice. So I have a question that I've always wondered, do teams actually have like fighting consultants or coaches that teach toughness? I know there's goaltending coaches, etc. but is there is there ever that type of consultant? Because I think there are teams where you hear they're just not tough enough and why aren't they hiring someone like you or the the recently retired players that were known for, for being tough physical players? Well, you know, I've had that question asked me before, and I certainly don't know what every team in the National Hockey League or minor league teams are doing. Any teams that I was part of, they had limited resources, really, other than the Rangers. They had lots of money, but they um, they didn't have anybody. We didn't even have nutritionists back in those days, never mind fighting coaches. I think that uh, obviously today, you know, the fighters are kind of dying out. You need to be tough in the game of hockey, but you can't just have the only job of, of being a fighter. Um, and I do think that there was a guy out of Edmonton that that was, I 
don't know if he was a karate guy or a boxing guy. He was a conditioning coach. But I think he had some sort of martial arts arts or boxing background that, you know, he brought along with his training ability. So, so I would think that there was nobody dedicated, but if you had a trainer that had a background to boot, you might be able to learn a little bit from them. But nobody hires the ex-players back in the day. So I think it's uh, time to talk about your friend Roddy Piper. Before you do, I just wanted to remind people that they can send emails to us at viewfromthepenaltybox at gmail.com. They can also tweet you directly at camconnornhl with any questions. Uh, you've been getting some pretty interesting feedback. I think you've both been surprised. We should have a podcast just answering all the feedback questions. But um, I will pass the microphone over to you, Dad. You can talk a little bit about one of your, your good friends. Well, you know, I just made a few notes. Uh, maybe 10, 15 little bullets. And it's kind of all over the board. It's not necessarily following since we were 17 or 16 all the way up to Rod's death. Uh, I apologize. I might be jumping around a bit. And there's definitely some stories that I'll have to take to my grave. Um, I just can't reveal some of the things with Rod and I. And believe me, these ones are the most interesting, but I can't. Um, and hopefully I don't cross any lines when I'm telling some stories out there, not meaning to hurt anybody, but, uh, you know, go ahead. Yeah, I was just going to say, maybe we could start off by how you, how you, how you met Rod, how old were you, what city were you both in? Well, you know, Rod and I, we were, I'm going to say 16 or 17 when we first connected. We both, Rod's dad was a, Worked for CN Railways as a policeman, I think, and uh, and so he moved around quite a bit. I know he was in Toronto, he was in Nepal, Manitoba. I think he was in Saskatoon, so he moved around quite a bit. And so, you know, in high school, I think like grade ten, we have lockers, and uh, he ended up in a locker right next to me. But you know, we just said hello. We didn't really engage too much other than hello and um, one day there was a knock at my back door in Winnipeg and uh, there was some mutual friends who were standing there with Rod and Rod's real name is Rod Toombs and so Rod Toombs was like I said at the back door with a couple of my buddies and my buddy said Cam you're a tough guy and this new guy Rod he's tough why do you guys have a fight now, you listeners, are, you're going to think it sounds like caveman here, but, you know, uh, just where I was at in my life back then. So I said, sure. So Rod and I walked out into my garage, just the two of us, closed the door, and we went at it. And uh, I could tell right away this guy had been trained a fighter. Because every time he threw a punch at me, he made noises. I said, oh, those noises are scared me. Never mind how fast his hands were. So I realized if I'm going to beat Rod, I had to knock him out. So my hands were pretty quick, and so I threw a quick left at the Rod. And he just, as a trained boxer, you know, you just move your head over about an inch. And my, my hands sailed straight by him, and I ended up tearing my tricep. Like, just take a rubber band and snap a rubber band in half. That's what happened to my tricep. 
Anyways, then he got me with a couple more shots. And it was just like in the movies. He knocked me over. I had a 650 Triumph. He knocked me over my bike. And uh, we established the pecking order. And, you know, from that day on, Rod and I were buddies. I mean, yeah, but you didn't say who won the, who won the fight. <laughs> yeah. You can't well, move on. Well, I got to say, after he knocked me over my bike, I thought that was a clue. Okay. So, so yeah, so he beat me, but... Uh, but let me just say this, just because you said that. I don't ever think I could beat Rod, but I know when we'd be wrestling at his house, that was his forte. He loved his wrestling. He didn't do hockey or, or football or soccer or baseball, the sports or tennis that I play or swimming. He was a wrestler. And we'd go over at his house, and again, you know, as in the other podcasts, I had mentioned how I worked for concrete companies and I'd move cinder blocks 2,000 plus a day. So I was really strong, and Rod and I, we would wrestle all the time at his house. And I know that if I got on top of him, and I was strong enough to keep him down, he would go berserk. If 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 I was beating him, he wouldn't stop. Like He would just keep this thing going and going and going, and it would turn into a mad fight. So I know for sure back in the younger days, I just said, piss on it. It's not worth, you know, me keeping him down there, because he's going to get up like a friggin' animal and come after me, so... I let him move me over, but I'm not saying I could take him as we got along farther, but he was tougher than me in the long run. And I just, I want to add that it's actually, as you go through your stories, uh, the viewers will come to realize just how impressive it is that these two rambunctious uh, teenagers both ended up being successful champions in their field. You won the Stanley Cup, and he became one of the top wrestling superstars ever. So it's quite interesting. Well, you know what? I, I would say just uh, to carry what you said a little farther, I think when I look at the common denominator with Rod and I, we both were willing to work harder than anybody else. Physically, we were never afraid of hard work. We really weren't. Whether it was, you know, in Rod's book, I mean, I know it brought back a lot of memories, but when we would go to the weight room, I'm ready to quit because we already put in a long day pushing weights. He said, no, no, we got to do a couple more sets, a couple more sets. I said, Rod, I have nothing else to give. Come on, you can do it. I said, okay. And he would push me, and I would get to the point where I would be throwing up when I was finished working out with him. He would push me so hard. But, you know, I just wanted to be a better athlete than I was. And he wanted to be a wrestler. And so we both paid a price. And little did I know that I would make it in, in hockey. And Rod, I was pretty sure he was going to make it because, you know, Rod wasn't a big guy in a, in a, he was, you know, was, he was a little guy in a big man's world. And so I wasn't so sure about Rod's odds, but, you know, Rod could always talk a bird out of a tree. He was something else when you hung around with him. The stuff that would come out of his mouth, it would just crack me right up. So what kind of, uh, I guess, in, in school, what kind of a student or what kind of a uh, person was he at 16? Well, Rod, uh, he had, you know, school. He, If he got a 51, he was happy. You know, he didn't, he didn't care about school. Um, his mind was on how to... How to survive in the real world, and that's really where his head was. He didn't, he didn't think, you know, he was going to be doing nine to five like everybody else, and going on to, you know, trade school or university or 
that's not who he was and that's not what he wanted to do. And he was willing to travel and uh, start at the bottom and work, excuse me, work his way up. And uh, he did. And you mentioned, uh, the, I think in high school, that there was a story about pencils. Well, what that was is in high school, we, uh, Rod and I had like a couple free class, like before class, it was like an hour that both of us didn't have a class to go to, so we'd hang out. And the next class was one that we had together. It was American history. And so Rod, he would always get to that classroom. Now, the classroom we had to go into, that teacher had a break um, just before uh, teaching, you know, the class Rod and I were in. So that class was always vacant with the door locked. So Rod would get there early. And he'd jam a toothpick into the lock. So when the gentleman went to, teacher went to put his key in there, he had had a toothpick broken off and he'd jam it in farther and he couldn't get into the classroom. So he'd say, oh, I can't get in there. And uh, we got a free class. And so Rob did this pretty regularly. And um, so one day the teachers were talking and the one teacher was saying, there's always a toothpick jammed in my lock. And another teacher said, well, mine too. So they compared who was in each class. What was the common denominator? So it turned out there was three of us that were in both of those classes, Rod and I and the smartest guy in the school. So, of course, they eliminated one. And they never knew if it was me or Rod, but I'm setting the record straight. It wasn't me. But I did get the benefit from not going into class. You know, so Rod, uh, you know, he had a little bit of the devil in him, but he never hurt anybody else. And Rod, he taught me a lot growing up. We had uh, what we would call nerds in the school. Um, these were guys that, you know, they weren't athletic and they, they didn't talk a lot. And they were maybe a little awkward socially. And and I was never personally mean to them. Um, I walked by them in the hallway. I wouldn't talk to them. Uh, but Rod would always talk to these socially awkward people. He would always go out of his way and talk to them. And, you know, he taught me an awful lot about those kind of people. That, uh, And I've got one particular story when we talk about the Rangers. There's an old man named Tony. So Chris, remind me about I'll remember. That. I'll write it down. So, but Rod, he just taught me about... You know, don't judge people. Like, it's what's on the inside that counts. And he would talk to anybody. And he was always, Rod was always good to the person that needed a friend. Rod was always there. And so, you know, I, I learned a lot from him. And one of the things when I think about that is when Rod and I, he had a tough upbringing at home. And uh, at in high school, he... He still lived at home, but he wasn't there every night because there was a lot of problems in his house. And he didn't have much money at all, like not a lot, so he'd have to spend it on hotel rooms. And we were walking down Winnipeg, the main drag in Winnipeg. It's called Portage Avenue. Now, back in the day, in the early 70s, there wasn't a lot of homeless people around on the streets. You hardly ever saw them. And we were walking down the street, and there was a homeless man sitting off to the side with his hat out front, you know, 
not saying anything, but just, you know, he, he was looking for some money, and we both walked by him. Now, earlier in the day, I saw Rod reach into his pocket, and he had $30 to his name, a $20 bill and a $10 bill. And I know that had to last him the rest of the week. He didn't have any other money. He had to pay for food. He had to pay for his hotel room. So we walked by this homeless guy. And Rod uh, maybe walked by this guy for about 10 seconds past him. And then he stopped. And then he turned around. And he walked back. And I saw him reach into his pocket. And he took 20 out of his $30. And he put it in this guy's hat. And then he walked back. And we just continued. What was I most impressed about? I've seen in this world so many times when people do something nice for somebody else, then they'll turn around and say, hey, did you see what I just did? Yeah, and they'll brag about it. And that defeats the whole purpose of why you do something nice for somebody else. It's not for public recognition. It's not to make yourself feel better. Rod, he never once mentioned that, even to the day he died, he never once mentioned, and I brought it up to him, you know, that uh, he would give 20 out of his last $30 to somebody who was less fortunate than himself. And right then and there, I knew I had a good friend, that this man cared about people. And, um, you know, don't get me wrong, he had a little crazy streak in there too when he had to fight out in the streets. But if you were a harmless person... He was not going to take advantage of you, nor would he ever mock you. So throughout our life, Rod and I, we had a lot of adventures. Like I said, there's a lot I can't uh, speak to you about. But uh, one of the things before Rod did get into wrestling, I mean, he was always in wrestling in high school. That was always part of his life, but not as, not where he got paid. So he was from Toronto, and he said, well, let's go to Toronto. And I had a motorcycle. He said, well, take your motorcycle. I said, no friggin' way. It's like three-day drive. We'll kill ourselves on my bike. And so we decided, again, we had limited funds. So we decided that we were going to hitchhike. Two big guys on the side of the road hitchhiking from Winnipeg to Toronto. And so we knew that a lot of cars are going to go right past us because we scared them. So we had the sign on the side of the road that just said, please. And then if they would turn around after they drove past us, we had a backside said, thank you. So we said, well, maybe if we're polite, maybe we wouldn't scare them as much. Well, it didn't work. So it took us a long time to get to, we remember this spot's called Wawa in Ontario. And I read in the Reader's Digest where it was the, the spot they said that if you're a hitchhiker, this is a spot you don't want to have to hitchhike from because you'll never get a ride. So, of course, we end up in Wawa. And uh, Rod says, well, you you uh, you hitchhike the first four hours. I'll just sleep in the ditch, and then we'll switch off. I said, well, okay. So, of course, I do it for four hours. Nobody's picking us up. Rod, your turn. And I'm going to get comfortable in a ditch if there's such a thing and try to go to sleep like Rod did. Across the street was a gas station. So Rod is a little smarter than me. You are, And I told you before, he could talk a bird out of a tree, that guy. So he walked across the street to the gas station and he was talking to this guy who was pumping his gas. 
and I never forgot his name was Tom Luck. And he come up, and then Rod talked to this guy, and he comes back over to where I was in the jet. He said, let's go. I said, what do you mean? He goes, I got a ride to Toronto. I said, are you kidding me, man? So he uh, talked Tom Luck into uh, giving us a ride all the way to Toronto. So we get to Toronto, and, um, you know, before we got to Wawa, we had to sleep in, uh, we were in Thunder Bay. We had nowhere to sleep. We slept in outdoor ballparks and on the benches. It froze our butt off. So now we're in Toronto, and we're going down Young Street. And um, we have a some kind of a, something going on where they close uh, many, many, many blocks of Young Street. And you can walk down Young Street, and you could uh, just walk on the street. So Rod and I were walking down the street, because Rod says he knows where he's going. So we're walking down the street, and then there was this little shop off to the side with a speaker on the outside. And they were saying, we're going out of business, we got cameras we're selling, we got watches, we got lighters that we're selling for five cents. And anyways, Rod says, Rod smoked back then, and he said... I need a lighter for five cents. Let's go in there. So Rod and I, we went in there. And uh, they let the place fill up. And then they closed and locked the doors. And then they pulled all the blinds down. And it was an empty kind of like a warehouse with just like a bar set up with shelves behind it. And so the, the guy who was doing all the talking who worked there, so he said, okay, you're here for some deals today. We're going out of business. We're giving you good deals. And now you people are going to find it hard to believe that, you know, we got sucked in. But you have to be there because these guys were good. And, you know, Rod and I thought we were street smart. But these guys, they knew what they were doing. And so make a long story short, he said, okay, I got uh, cameras for, and I'll make up a number, $25. Who wants to pay me $25 for this camera? And let's just say that the camera was worth 25 bucks. Nobody put up their hand because they're looking for a deal. One person in the front standing up goes, Oh, I'll give you, I need a camera. I'll give you 25 bucks. So the guy took his money and put it on the bar and put the camera on top. And then he kept talking about other things. And then he went, You know what, buddy? You wanted this. You don't only want to put your hand up. Here, take the money back and you can have the camera. And then they did this with a few other products. Only one or two people put their hands up because it wasn't a deal. And then he always kept giving the money back. While he was setting us up, make a long story short, we ended up buying an empty bag for 20 bucks because he was going to fill it up with a lot more valuables. And Rod and I only had a hundred and something bucks each. And it had to last us the whole time in Toronto. And just to Cut to the chase here. We walked out of there with our, our bags full of like trinkets. And they took all the money out of our pockets. Like we gave it to them, but we, it was psychological. We were thinking we we're going to get something for nothing. They were going to give us some money back. And so when we walked out of there, Rod and I started laughing at ourselves. Man, welcome to the big city. We got sucked in. Well, we had no money. So Rod and I said, let's go to the cops. We went to the cop shop, which is only a couple blocks down. 
And we told him what had happened. And the guy said, you're not the first. They do this three times a day. There's people complaining all the time. And, uh, you know, they're not doing anything illegal. They're using psychology, trying to get something for nothing. And you pay the price. So there's nothing we can do to shut them down. So Rod and I walked out of there and we said, yeah, well, we can do something about it. So we waited till they closed that night. And when the guy walked out of the store, we were going to go over and confront him and get our money back. When the guy walked out, it looked like two guys that were ex-Green Berets. Man, they were like 6'8". They are huge. So Rod and I still went over there. We confronted the guy. We said, we don't have any money. You took all our money. And Rod, you know, he's a charmer and he was talking nice. And me, I'm not so nice that way. And I was get mad and threatening the guy and I'll do this and that and so the guy said well you know I don't feel for you guys he said but uh, I was in prison for five years and I studied psychology and the human greed and when I got out of there I had this figured out and uh, I do pretty well getting people's money just like yours but he says to Rod but you you are polite and you're nice I'll give you 20 bucks but you meaning me you're getting nothing so, anyways, we walked away because it was smarter. They had these, like I said, ex-Green Beret guys with them. So, we had no money left, so we had to sleep at the YMCA. And, anyways, we ended up uh, borrowing some money from my cousins, and we took a Greyhound back. And uh, it was quite an adventure. We uh, we learned a lot that we're not as smart as we thought. And the other other thing I can think of here, just uh, while we're growing up in Winnipeg, um, so Rod was fighting on the local circuit, and you know within Winnipeg and within an hour or two in each direction outside of Winnipeg. So there was a place called Selkirk, which was about half hour, I believe, north of Winnipeg. And he asked me if I want to come see him fight in Selkirk. I said sure. So we went in there and. Uh, myself and I watched the fights and then he said well let's go for a beer after and I was playing in the WHA at the time in Phoenix so these guys the wrestlers they all want to go to this strip joint in uh, Selkirk so we went in there we're drinking beer and one of the girls had just finished dancing and walking by our table and the wrestlers called the girl over come have a beer with us so the girl sat down with us and started talking to the guys and uh and then one of the wrestlers says, she says, you guys are pretty big guys. Who, what do you guys do? And he said, well, we're wrestlers. And she goes, oh, really? And then one guy, one guy says, do you like wrestlers? She goes, no, I don't like wrestlers. I like hockey players. So I'm not saying a word. I'm just listening. So Rod says, why do you like hockey players? She goes, well, my brother plays in the World Hockey Association. So that's why I like hockey players. So Rod says to her, my buddy here. He's a hockey player. She goes, you're a hockey player? I said, yeah, I am. Where do you play? I said, I play in the WHA also. She goes, you do? And she said, do you know my brother? And then she gave me his name. I said, yeah, I do. She goes, you do? I said, yeah. She goes, oh, please don't tell him I'm a stripper. Please don't tell him I'm a stripper. And I'll tell you, when we played against a guy, he was standing right in front of our bench on the other team. I was tempted, but I never did tell the guy. So... Her secret's still safe. So you also mentioned that uh, there's a pretty memorable uh, match with Rod in Winnipeg. In fact, it's probably his first match ever. Right. 
Okay, I'll wrap this one up about, you know, there's probably more and more we could go on about Winnipeg, but I'll just tell you when Rod first started his very first paying match um, in Winnipeg, uh, he, again, he didn't have any money. I didn't have any money to give him and, uh, at the time. And he had to wear his boxing shoes into the wrestling match because he couldn't afford boxing shoes, so he wore... She couldn't, she couldn't afford wrestling, so he wore his boxing shoes. And did he have a kilt at that point? And he wore a kilt. Wow. And he had a bagpipes and the whole nine yards. So, you know, and that's, think, I think that's where the his name started was right then. But anyway, so he played the bagpipes and then he put them down. And I took his bagpipes and then he starts walking down the aisle way, you know, coming to the ring. And uh, he had said to me, I'm going to be the bad guy. What do you think we can, I can do to get people to remember me? So, you know, something that had to be that would be get their attention and not, not cost any money. So what we did that afternoon is he had this kind of a basket, and we filled it full of dandelions. So when he was walking down the aisles coming in, he would have that mean look on his face, and he would grab a handful of dandelions and throw them in people's faces. And he got them all mad, right? And he got into the ring. And uh, that was his, his first paying match. And, you know, I think he lasted about uh, a minute and a half. We got beat up, and that was the end of that. But uh, I'll never forget it. The Dandelions and uh, his first time playing his bagpipes. And he must have uh, learned how to be a bad guy, considering you mentioned he's been stabbed three times throughout his career. So Yeah, Rod had mentioned, you know, if when... You know, and this is for other podcasts, but when we'd hook up when I was living in New York and other cities, whenever we go to the bar, and Rod was, he is extremely well-known in the East Coast, extremely well-known. I think he was in the first WrestleMania, and uh, people remember Rod. And so if we wanted to go for a beer, like Rod said, he'd been knifed three times, so we'd go in the bar, and he'd have to put his back to the wall because um, he'd have to keep an eye on people around him because he was the bad guy and a lot of people would take it serious. And last thing, if you ever picked up Rod's leather jacket, if you ever Google, you know, and get some pictures of Rod, you'll see him wearing a black leather jacket. Believe me, that is the heaviest leather jacket you ever picked up. And I said, how come it's so heavy? He goes, well, it's harder for a knife to go through this. And that's why he'd always wear that big heavy leather jacket. So I think this is probably a, a good place to stop for part one of your stories with Roddy Piper. I guess logically now your hockey career is progressing to where you're becoming a professional and now he's left to become a professional wrestler. So it'll, it'll be interesting to hear uh, if you lost touch or how you reconnected or how you both kind of, what paths you took to your, to ultimately achieving your dreams. Well, I'll say this. He was a little more successful than I was. I mean, he was a world champ, I think, in the WWE at the time. He, he wasn't. He didn't, as far as I know, become uh, the world champion. Okay. But he's in the Hall of Fame. So. Uh, okay, that's pretty good, too. Yes. So, But he did very well for himself. I can't complain. I'd like to do it all over again. I think I'd, I'd have a better career. But we'll end it there. Thanks. I'm Chris. I'm Cam. <laughs>